I wanted to alert our listeners that we're switching the podcast from a weekly podcast to a bi-weekly podcast. And it starts bi-weekly after the episode that's released on February 4th. After that, it'll be February 18th and then continuing to be bi-weekly. The podcast will still be released on Tuesdays. And we really appreciate your support of the Solar Maverick podcast. Thank you. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I would like to thank Silverline Communications for sponsoring this episode. Silverline Communications, an integrated marketing and PR agency focused on clean and emerging tech, is headquartered in Washington, D.C., with satellite offices in Chicago and Salt Lake City. You'll learn more about Silverline during the podcast. Thank you again to Silverline Communications for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. We truly believe that if we can just continue to build our good partnerships, that certainly Speed and Trust will help foster those relationships and you know, hopefully bring us some new ones. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangent, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm excited to have Richard Walsh. He's the managing partner at Madison Energy Investments, a platform that develops, owns, and operates distributed generation projects within the commercial, industrial, and small utility scale sectors. Before that, Rich spent five years at WGL, where he led business development activities related to solar. He originated over 300 million of projects across a dozen of state markets with clients ranging from federal government to professional sports teams. Rich also previously worked in renewable energy advisory with Sterling Planet. Thank you, Richard, for being on the podcast. Yeah, Benoit. Happy to be here, man. Love a good podcast. Yeah, definitely. And I'm excited to have you because you bring a lot of great perspective in the industry from your varied experience. And I feel like our listeners who we call Mavericks will learn a lot from the discussion. And I've enjoyed our conversations about energy in the past and being on a panel with you as well. So I'm excited that you agreed to participate. Yeah, of course. No, we've had a lot of good dialogue in the past. I think we're frequent buddies at conference events and things like that. So certainly glad to be here and chime in a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And it would be helpful. You know, obviously, Madison Energy Investments is a relatively new company, and it would be great for our listeners to learn more than what I said in the description about the company and what specifically you're involved. It sounds like you wear a lot of hats being a, you know. Yeah, no, thanks. And I think the, the description's good. We're a platform that develops, constructs, owns and operates distributed generation with a focus on CNI Solar here in the United States. And uh, myself and two others started it just about a year ago. And I'd like to say there was some great founding story, but truth be told, our hand was really forced in some ways because we were all doing well at, at Washington Gas at WGL Energy and built a nice distributed solar portfolio there. And, and things are going good, but after an acquisition, you know, things change as they always do. And we recognize the market is also changing to where the cost of capital was evolving and you really needed a team set up to move quickly in that. And, and the fact that we were in a transition after an acquisition made it pretty tough. And so myself and, and partners, Jack Hackman and Steve Cunningham worked really well together. And we knew there was this influx of capital looking to access all of renewables, frankly, in the U.S., but particularly the ones that were looking at this CNI solar sector. And so that led us to getting Madison Energy Investments off the ground. 
That's great. I mean, that's amazing to hear. You talked about cost to capital. We were actually talking about this before the podcast. And actually, this goes to an article that you wrote, too, is that there and even on the fundraising side, you mentioned that there's basically a lot of interest from a lot of investors to invest in the space. Yeah. And look, I think there's no doubt about that. The market's maturing to the point where you have, and I think in the article, I called it the Baskin Robbins uh, flavor. 31 flavors. Yeah, That's, right. This it, is an article that Richard, which we'll have the link to the article, which was in GTM Research, where you talk about, it came out in October about trends. Yeah, yeah. And one of the main trends is, like you said, Benoit, it's these all this money in the market. And we we knew it when we were at WGL because we, we found ourselves competing against it sometimes. And sometimes they are investors that know what they're doing. And sometimes it's maybe an investor that circled U.S. solar and then you realize they don't really know what they're doing. And so when we decided to form Madison, you mentioned the fundraising and it was actually surprisingly easy to get meetings with the top investors in the world. And we, of course, had the portfolio and the experience to stand on. And I think the other thing that we're very fortunate to have as our foundation at Madison Energy Investments is the three founders, we all come from different backgrounds. And so you have Jack, who knows everything there is to know about construction, engineering operations, and then Steve on the tax equity structured finance side, and myself on the origination development markets. And so that happened naturally at WGL. But then when we got it started, it was nice to have really the three legs of the stool. And so you mentioned the fundraising. We talked to two, maybe three dozen different investors. We probably had a half a dozen that were interested, very interested to give us some kind of a term sheet, and then three or four that were tough to choose from, but eventually landed with Stone Peak and have found them to be an incredible partner. And because there is so much capital out there, you really need a partner that brings value in other ways. And they have a, a team that is willing to roll up their sleeves and move fast. They know their stuff. Uh, they know renewables all over the world and have really gotten to understand the, the U.S. market, a very experienced team. And then they had already circled the CNI solar market as something they, as a niche they wanted to play in as part of their global renewables fund. And so being that they had already done the macro work, it made our job a lot easier to close the deal with them. And we really just had to sell the team in the process. Definitely. I mean, that's an amazing story to hear. And then the compliments that all three partners have. And then obviously Stone Peak being an educated investor who has experience in energy, which is then able for you to move through projects and deals faster, especially when you talk about the CNI space and everyone wants a quick turnaround yeah, when it comes to pricing and due diligence and negotiating terms and so that's really interesting to hear. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, all the developers, you know, we got to close tomorrow. We got to close next <laughs> week. So, And we love them all. You have to have an investor behind you that has the deep pools of capital, but also is able to be flexible and keep up your pace. Definitely. And I know we talked about this a little bit. How are you able to differentiate from other investors? You mentioned being obviously very experienced, you know, having a successful portfolio in the past. You talked about the diversity of skills of the team. Is there any other things that you think differentiate? Uh, because I thought it was interesting in the article too, you talked about that there's the whole 31 flavors. So yeah, so we could start on the differentiator key. In the good old days, when we were at WGL early on, we had a balance sheet, we had cheap capital, we were tax efficient. That was all you needed to do. And then as you see the market, that let's call that five, six years ago, and then as the market 
matures, okay, maybe we had to take a little bit more construction risk and we're not just waiting there with a checkbook at COD. Okay, well then maybe we have to bring in third-party tax equity because we've used all of ours, right? So then the market evolves that way. And then now you're seeing that project has good credit. The construction risks are relatively low, especially when you have someone like my man Jack on the team. And thirdly, you're now having to come in in the development side of the equation. So you're having to push, either move up in development or add value somewhere on the back end, whether that's bringing the client maybe to a deal. If it's community solar, maybe you're bringing some subscribers or maybe there's something you're doing with you understand that state and you're helping them out there. But you can't just the days of just waiting till COD or even NTP and getting good credit contracted returns are gone unless you're adding some value along the way. That's a great point, how adding value, getting involved earlier in the development process to be able to win projects, that's a huge differentiator. On the back of our business cards, we have certainty, speed, and trust written there. And it's a bit corny, we know that, but we just hammer that home. And we want it on the back of our cards, not only to show people, but it's to remind us that every time we introduce ourselves to someone, we truly mean we are going to do exactly what we tell you we're gonna do, and we're gonna do it fast. And that sounds almost trite, but it's really needed in this market because I can't tell you how many times we see what we joke and call the boomerang deal, where we throw it back to the developer and it comes back to us because they were promised some price that somebody couldn't deliver on, or they were promised a schedule, or they peeled back the curtain a little bit and realized that the person who said they had the money, they were actually waiting on somebody else that had the money. We truly believe that if we can just continue to build our good partnerships, that certainly speed and trust will help foster those relationships and you know, hopefully bring us some new ones. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that is so huge, the whole concept, certainty, speed and trust, because, and I'm sure you've seen it, I've seen it many times where developers will go for the highest All development the time, fee. Yeah. And then there's a lot of, as you mentioned, uh, reasons why they don't get that development fee. So it's really about finding that great partner to work with that's going to say what they do and be transparent and obviously timely. So that's huge. That's right. Yeah. And, we, and, you know, we flip that around. Our best development partners give us the same thing. So it's how you build relationships in this market. And the only way to get scale and CNI is through being able to skillfully aggregate projects. And to do that, you need relationships. That's interesting because that goes to our next question. You focus on commercial, industrial, distributed generation. Can you talk about more why that part of the market you're putting a lot of focus on? Yeah, I think at a high level, CNI customers, and we like those with good credit, so a lot of the mush, municipals, universities, schools, hospitals, and then some of the corporates too, they pay retail rates for power. So if you're working with them in DG or community solar or something that looks like that, you're getting to offset their retail rate. Whereas utility scale, you're obviously offsetting a wholesale rate. And with Resi, the scale is messy, the credit's messy. So CNI, we think, is this nice sweet spot. But the, the big if there, and this is a theme you'll notice, is you have to be able to add value and you have to be able to aggregate. And so for the investor, for Stone Peak and other institutional like investors, infrastructure funds, you have to give them scale. And that's putting equity to work, not even including the tax equity and debt. The only way to get scale is to aggregate. And the only way to aggregate is to have a team that understands what they're doing, that has experience. And the only way to find the deals is to have long-term relationships in different state markets. And so that's the number one key. If you're able to aggregate, 
then CNI, it's a good business to be in. But a lot of this foreign money that's coming in, they think they can just wait for the next bank process or wait for the next RFP, and then they'll be able to aggregate that way. And you can't do that. The other is on, I mentioned the credit side, and then just diversification. So even if we have good credit now, and maybe one of them turns into less good credit, you're never just reliant on one to two customers. And we already have done I don't know, probably 70, 80 megawatts with across a number of different off takers. And they're all good credit, but they're also spread out among states. So if we have one state and we're big in Minnesota, Massachusetts, a couple of states like that, if they're to change their policy and go away, well, guess what? We're already in eight states. And by the end of next year, we'll probably be in 20. So we really like the diversification from a state market and policy risk standpoint and also a customer standpoint. And again, the construction management schedules are actually pretty short, anywhere from three to nine months, as you know, and we're able to manage that risk effectively. So I think if the whole key is being able to aggregate and then manage those assets effectively, which we've shown we can do both of those. Definitely. That's a huge competitive advantage. And that is pretty interesting to hear why you're focused on commercial industrial. And I know you mentioned this too. Can you talk about some of the projects? I know you talked about community solar. Maybe not everyone's familiar with community solar. I know you mentioned Minnesota and Massachusetts, which are big community solar markets. It would be helpful. Yeah, well, you can maybe start with the first one we close. It's a nice portfolio of about 17 megawatts and even more credit to Stone Peak. So we were joking with them a bit of an aside the other day with looking at the first email that was sent and then trying to see when we actually had money in the Madison account. And it was amazing. It was remarkable. It's probably two months when all that from meeting them to wow, the closing quick. projects and the funding. And the, the fun part about that community solar portfolio was that we closed that with the funding into Madison. And so we not only are asking for all this money to go invest in solar projects and everything else, but we're also Oh, and by the way, we need to close a $40 million portfolio while we do it. So, I mean, those are starting to come online now. I think we uh, sent out our newsletter yesterday and had one that had snow all around it. So you're really starting to get into that Minnesota winter now. But but that's a great program that Excel runs. It's easy to understand. We have a couple of really good local partners in that market that know the market well. They know the subscribers well. They get us high quality off takers. And we've just been able to rinse and repeat that the last couple of years. So we really like Minnesota. You mentioned Massachusetts. We have another great partner we just got off the phone with on another portfolio in mass, and we're building that up probably over 20 megawatts now and hopefully more there. And that, to me, is a really well-designed program. It's pretty basic. If you get the base rate, you know that. If you're on a roof, you get a little bit more. If you're a carport, a little bit more. If you're community solar, a little bit more. If you're a battery, a little bit more. And so it's just very simple for all the players in the process to understand the value. And then it provides us with what we need is good contracted returns and high credit. And it provides developers with what they need. It's uh, marching orders once they get their SOQ. Those are probably our two the states we've invested the most in. We're still active in Jersey and California. We'll always be active there. Maryland, Ohio, Pennsylvania have come up. Virginia, we're pretty bullish on Virginia as well. So again, we hope to be in every single state at some point, and we'll probably be in 20 by the end of next year. Wow, that's amazing growth in a pretty short period of time. Congratulations. If you could talk about your background before Madison Energy Investments, what got you interested in renewables and solar? I know you've you know worked at three different firms in renewable energy. It would be great because you're, you're definitely very passionate about the industry. And Yeah, I am. I wish I there's certain folks in the industry that have some story that 
maybe pulls at the heartstrings a little bit about the environment or sustainability. And, and I'll be honest, I don't have that angle. Mine was simply a friend of mine, one of my good friends in college, her dad had been very successful in business and I was floundering, didn't have a clue what I was going to do after school. I'd done an internship in banking and didn't really want to do that. And so he suggested, this was 2009, said, you ought to look at this whole green movement. And he had this energy efficiency company he had started at the time. And then, so throughout that year, I just bought a couple of books, started reading, and he just kept playing the role of mentor. And I'd see him at a football game or see him somewhere and he'd chat with me about what's going on in the market. And then eventually worked at Sterling Planet where we were working a lot with corporates and utilities. This was right around the carbon tax time, right? When they thought that might come out. So utilities are ramping up their RPS or they're figuring out how to do a green program to all their consumers. And then the corporates are buying recs at the time, but trying to figure out a way to really advance their renewable energy procurement strategy. And so we, it was really fortunate to work at a young age at a place where you're dealing with the sustainability director at Microsoft or with the head of renewable energy at PG&E and, and things like that, that we were flying over the country working with these folks on. And one of our clients was WGL. And so I was able to build a good relationship with them, eventually went to work with them full time and started on the retail side. And, and that was actually a very interesting lens to see how the retailer thinks about renewable energy. And then next door you have the utility and next door to that you have the, the systems group or the group that's going to own assets on the balance sheet and, and understanding that those don't always work well together inside a large company. And so that was really the first task is to bridge those that gap. But understanding how retail energy how it works at the wholesale level, how it's sold, how the brokers think, how the customers think, how the sales folks think at WGL, and then taking that lens into solar. I don't think there's a lot of that in the market of really the retailers don't understand solar and the solar developers don't understand retail. And so you have community solar and you have these massive utility scale projects. And there's all this in between that really working at a retailer helped me understand you know, how that market thinks about buying energy and then how solar fits into that. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Silverline Communications. Silverline Communications, an integrated marketing and PR agency focused on clean and emerging tech, is headquartered in DC with satellite offices in Chicago and Salt Lake City. What defines them? They're independent, agile, absolutely invested in their clients and their teams. They're storytellers and connectors at heart, grounding programs with insights to achieve real business objectives and shape outcomes that influence markets and policy. They use every tool in the communication arsenal to translate complex ideas into breakthrough campaigns that drive stakeholder action. The team that gets it done, Silverline Communications. Strategic, smart professionals with unrivaled expertise in energy policy and emerging technologies. In short, they know their stuff. They believe in what they do, they believe in what their clients do, and when their clients succeed, the world is a better place. To learn more about Silverline, go to teamsilverline.com. You can read Silverline at 703-286-5500 or info at teamsilverline.com. I interviewed Laura Taylor, who's the CEO and founder of Silverline Communications on episode 59 of the Solar Maverick podcast. It's called Lessons Learned from a Clean Energy Entrepreneur, which was a great interview. Thank you again to Silverline Communications for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. 
I know one of the points that I wanted to talk to you about was we've talked on the podcast about the proliferation of corporate PPAs. A lot of the big companies that 100% renewable energy goals have used that as a way of, you know, after onsite, then going offsite to a corporate PPA. And I thought it was interesting to get your perspective on like the smaller companies that want and what the solution would be. Because from actually reading on, you wrote it as like a blog post on your website. It was interesting to see your perspective because you working at a retailer, I think it was pretty interesting to see how you felt to, because of what ends up happening, if a lot of listeners don't know, it's very difficult if you're not one of these large companies that has a very experienced energy department to understand the contracting. It's challenging to get renewable energy. Yeah, it is. And look, it, it all starts with what market you're in. I think it's the first thing to understand. But if you're an energy buyer of any sort, you should always maximize on-site if, they're, if you're able to. If you're able to do net metering, you're able to do something on-site in your state, 100% max that out. And then each state will have its own nuanced program. So Minnesota, again, has community solar. Massachusetts has a smart program. New Jersey has SREC. So whatever else you can do, so max on-site and then maybe get involved in some virtual net metering or community solar. But then you're still, if you're a large-ish energy user, you're going to have some load almost certainly left over. And then there's nothing you can do. And then let's think about the people that lease their buildings or that don't have roof space, don't have parking lots, don't have utility programs. So then if you don't have any of that, your hope is that you're then in an unregulated energy market because then you can at least get cute with how you buy your supply. We are a big believer that there's this whole middle market, no man's land of all those programs I mentioned in the on-site. And then you go to Facebook, Google, or Fang is what they're calling them, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, the folks that have the data center load and that can basically go into the PUC and write their own tariff because they're bringing jobs and load and all that. But then you have this whole map, like who owns this building we're sitting at in New York? Like who, probably a REIT, right? They're not able to participate in a lot of programs. And so there's so much load that falls between community solar and utility scale massive projects that not a lot of people are paying attention to. And so we, we want to own those assets that have a PPA with an energy retailer. And then that energy retailer does what it's been doing for the last 20 years of deregulation, at least in BJM, and sells one megawatt here, three megawatts there, four megawatts here. And it's almost like a bespoke community solar project. But you let the retailer do what the retailer does best, which is buy wholesale, sell retail. And you give the customer a simple contract and say, look, here's a Six-page contract, it's the same retail contract you've been using, but now it has solar on it. And that's the way. You don't try to make them sign some complicated virtual PPA or swap that, sure, Facebook and Amazon can do them because they have a team of 10 folks that are smart and have experience in the energy business and working on energy full-time. person that owns this building, the same person who buys the power is probably the same one who's responsible for the maintenance of the building that's and true. paying the bills. And so it's, to me... There's just this massive disconnect between the community solar and then utility scale. And I think it's just ripe for opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a huge opportunity and you explained it very succinctly in, in the solution. So hopefully there's more opportunities. With Surprisingly, I feel like it's taking a lot longer time to get retailers to do you know some of those structures. Yeah, and you know what I think it is? I think one of the main reasons is if you sit inside a retailer and you watch the salespeople all day, it's they're pricing out 
10 or 12 deals a day. I mean, it is, they're almost like traders. They're moving and shaking and they're getting, they're dealing with brokers, some direct customers, some. And so to get them, Benoit, to say, hey, Benoit, slow down a second. Let me tell you about solar. Sure. It's like, well, they see that as losing money for the afternoon. So it really is just this whole paradigm shift that has to take place for, to get the folks at the retailers that are actually speaking with the customer or the broker to slow down and have a long-term conversation because they're used to just churning and burning all day. And there's all these, oh, well, prices might go up. You know, the storage reports out, prices went down, book it, you know, so that it's a mindset shift. And then you have the solar developer who's used to a six month to 18 month process. And when you compare that to an hour process, it, it doesn't work out. There's definitely an opportunity there if, if somebody can bridge that gap. And I mean, we're certainly trying to do it. We have a, a project in Maryland that's an example of that. And we hope to have some in Virginia and Pennsylvania. And we think others should do the same because it's a great way to really unlock access to renewable energy. It's a huge opportunity and that's great. You definitely really know like what the challenges and issues are. And, and that's great to, from your experience at a retailer. And so that's great perspective. Yeah, sure thing. I appreciate it. We talked about actually the article that you wrote about observations of the commercial solar market. It would be great if you could talk about some of the other concepts. I know we spent a lot of time talking about how there's 31 different flavors in Baskin Robbins. Yeah, and I love Baskin Robbins. Yeah, me too, as well as I was laughing yeah. when you wrote that in the article. And that's related to obviously a lot of investors into the market and not necessarily being the right flavor for what a developer is trying to do. Can you talk about some of the other observations? Yeah, I think you mentioned developers. One of them was that developers really have their pick, right? And, and it's true to a certain extent. Like there's definitely money in the market that will invest in a spreadsheet that is a pipeline that's hardly more than a spreadsheet because they have some mandate to invest in solar. I think from the investor side and the developer side, there's a lot of diligence to be done there. And I think I mentioned this in the article, but really, I think it's unwise to do a structure like that if you haven't closed just a simple project together. Yeah, that was before. a great point that you mentioned, that to have some sort of partnership beforehand before yeah. you know, getting into it. If not, you're just going to over-engineer it. You're going to try to come up with every potential off-ramp there is. Somebody's going to end up getting screwed, and it's just... We've seen so many of those happen where it doesn't work out. Now, look, there are some that happen that do work out. And that's a, a great way for a developer to now have a balance sheet behind them to be able to participate in maybe more RFPs because of the strength or even the brand they have behind them. Maybe that investor can unlock some relationships for them, too. So there are certainly times when it makes sense. But just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean you have to do it, right? And a lot of developers will see a press release, I think, and they get anxious thinking, oh, I need to cash out or I need to get some of this. But if you're a developer and you're really good at what you're doing, you don't have cash constraints, you shouldn't do it, right? Let the folks that are good at owning assets do that. And then you keep doing what you're good at. And you know, I promise you'll make more money on the development side if you're good at it than you will owning and operating assets. Definitely, that's a great point. And that's interesting too, because really what we're seeing is a cost of capital for projects going lower. Obviously with developers, if they're able to develop a successful project that makes sense, the returns that they would get on the development fee would yeah. be. And then if you're gonna own it, you have to set up tax equity, which is a whole nother podcast, right? And that's our third <laughs> <Yes>. partner. <laughs> Fortunately, we have Steve, who's our third partner who did a lot of that at WGL and he's done a couple of them for us now here. And he's a whiz when it comes to that. And 
but it's a full-time job and he does everything else finance related too. So when I see how much he's had to do on that, both at WGL and here, and then I hear a developer saying they want to set up their own fund and they think they can continue to develop the way they have and do that, it's very challenging. So our main takeaway from that is we're obviously biased. We don't want any developer to go raise money because then that means they're, they might have raised money from someone that wants to own them long term. So uh, clearly there's bias here. But I would advise those that are doing it to just do one project as a test or, you know, go with an investor you've worked with before, because so many of these things take a long time. You pay a lot of bankers and a lot of lawyers, a lot of consultants, and it's all to just plan for hypotheticals instead of actually doing the work. Uh, Yeah, that's really a great perspective. Switching gears, you know, I thought it was interesting that you wrote about the Peter Thiel book, Zero to One, on its MEI musings, right? Or yeah, is, yeah. He's an uh, interesting guy. Huh? <laughs> yeah. I love this book. And then when I saw you write about it, how you enjoyed the book as well and some of the concepts and then applying it to your company, it just really got me interested in kind of hearing like what you liked about that book. Obviously, he's an amazing person and has done amazing things and really talks about how to build a strong business. Can you talk about how you've taken some of those concepts from that book and applied it? Because the podcast also, we talk about entrepreneurship. We also talk about books. I thought it was interesting because we have like a book club sort of thing. And then you mentioned in your newsletter about the Rockefeller book, which I thought was interesting on his life story. So it would be great to get your perspective on Peter Thiel's Zero to One. Yeah, well, I think he's definitely an interesting, bit controversial as of late, but there's no denying what he's done in the business world with PayPal and several others. And so, yeah, I think the book, if you're running any kind of organization, business, sports, whatever, it's helpful to go through and think about, at least learn, get a peek inside his mind, because he's definitely somebody that thinks about strategy differently than others. And I think he has a number of different questions. I can't remember them all, but one of them is the foundation. He talks about the foundation. It's like, do you have the right foundation. And so anybody starting a business, that's obviously an obvious question to ask. He has an engineering question, the durability question, the timing question. Obviously for timing, anyone in renewables, that's a pretty easy yes, right? But just thinking through all those things, are you uh, starting small and then growing big? You know, he talks about how Amazon was a bookstore and Facebook was on Harvard's campus and then it grew into the large social network. And And so it's a bit generous to even throw in Madison Energy Investments with any of those comparisons, but to just try to, the thought exercise of taking whatever organization you're running, be it a P&L and a larger company or a company, a developer, a nonprofit, and thinking how he thinks about that uh, on that big of a scale and, and then putting that in your own little world is a helpful exercise. And I had read it a number of years ago just when it came out because a lot of people recommended it. But then reading it about a year ago as we were looking at starting this up and, and seeing, okay, can I answer his seven questions? And and it was really, I think, a fascinating book. And you can read it in an afternoon. It's a very easy, quick read, but I'd highly recommend that book. And it's interesting too, because he talks about having a plan, something that's scalable. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because you mentioned relationships yeah. regarding scalability. It's not one-off sort of things, but which commercial industrial, it's about, as some of the concepts you mentioned earlier, it's having a portfolio yeah, of to different, diversify. To diversify. For, yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, again, aggregating and scaling. Like, you have to have the velocity, you have to aggregate to scale. 
to get the right cost of capital, you have to scale. And to scale, you have to have the right partners. And like you said, Benoit, it's a long-term view with the partners. Whereas if you're doing one utility scale deal in South America, you're not probably trying to do 20 of those. So you're going to squeeze every penny you can out of that. But if you're doing a community solar portfolio in Minnesota, and maybe the developer messed something up or we messed something up internally, then you have a partnership and you say, hey, we over forecasted production or, hey, we really thought the lease was this size. And then there are different things that change. Well, if you have a good partner, you work both ways there and you figure it out together. Whereas if you're in a transaction where you're trying to squeeze everything out of it, it's a different, whole different world when you're dealing with CNI. If you work with one partner and do one deal, you're losing money as the owner and operator. I can almost guarantee. Definitely. Yeah. With all the due diligence yeah. and all the legal that has to go involved, always the first transactions, the hardest to close. Absolutely. And then it becomes more scalable, as you mentioned, the more transactions. What uh, other trends are you seeing in the industry? I know we talked about a lot of different ones, and these are all great perspective. And I appreciate your insights uh, because you really have a, you know, it's just a really great insights. And then you could explain it very clearly. Well, I don't and know about that. When you just ramble all day like <laughs> I do, it, you, know, you, you get a lot of practice. So I'm sure if you ask my colleagues in there, they probably wouldn't agree. But yeah, I don't think you can mention the word trend and energy without talking about battery storage. And yes, it's commonplace now on podcasts, white papers, panels, but you have to. I mean, the costs are coming down. The incentives are starting to pop up, whether at the national level with the potential ITC or in states like Hawaii, Massachusetts, New York, California. I do think right now it seems to either be a standalone storage game or a heavily subsidized game. The folks that need critical power, you're competing with diesel gensets, and my understanding is that's still not economical. And when you're pairing it with storage, you really would have to have some sort of arbitrage, time of use rate strong, or maybe there's some crazy peak demand charges that you're trying to offset. So there are certainly little pockets of value there, too. I know the SGIP in California has been good. We're doing a couple in SMART, which is great. Again, it's very easy to digest, and you essentially pay for the battery with the storage adder. And then you have these folks, these aggregators in the market now that will help you manage the battery, and they'll do things they can do with the battery to earn you additional revenue with the Clean Peak standard and other market changes that are taking place in New England ISO and in Massachusetts in particular. So that seeing that market evolve is great. And I think Massachusetts is a good place to start and really learn. And so I would say that is one trend we're paying close attention to. Another one is shift in compensation. So you've seen it with Massachusetts, go to the smart program. You've seen it with New York and Veter, which is again, a whole nother podcast topic <laughs> that we'll get into right now. Let's just say we haven't done a deal in New York in a while. And then now New Jersey, as we were talking about, I think before we clicked record here, that they're transitioning from, and they just came out with it from the SREC to the TREC. And then it sounds like they're going to have some kind of a tariff like smart. So the states that were really at the forefront of solar are now you're seeing them change to these more tariff-like structures, which we're big fans of. We're not speculators and traders. We like contracted revenue. And these are certainly, at least in Massachusetts, and it sounds like what Jersey's trying to do, give you more of an infrastructure-like feel, which I think is a great way to get capital into your state market and really help shape the policy. Yeah, I mean, these are all amazing and great points. And it's interesting because I hearing about, you know, Massachusetts and you taking advantage of energy storage, mm -hmm. obviously the sort of feed in tariff or tariff, and then also trying to work with other parties to basically monetize other uses of the battery. I think that's really interesting to hear. 
And then as you said too, like moving more to like a tariff structure, it seems that's pretty popular. And the TREC program, if people are not familiar, it's like basically it's called the Transition Renewable Energy Credit Program, where it's like a fixed 15-year value that they're still kind of determining whether there's going to be a cost containment cap, which lowers the first three years. But it's a fixed value. It's not a tradable commodity like the SREC was like in Massachusetts and New Jersey. So Yeah, yeah. And again, some people aren't happy about it. Maybe the traders and folks like that are the speculators, but we see that as actually a, we like certainty. So Especially as an infrastructure fund and return, the more you, you know what to model in as a cash flow, as right. a security, you're able to then leverage as well, that as well. So do you have any questions for me? Well, I know look, we I talked think, about a lot of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> this has been great, man. I mean, it's been fun seeing your career evolve from Solar City and starting this up, and you know now the podcast, and, and, <laughs> and I know you guys are doing some great development work. So I think this is always great to share ideas about the market with you and learn about what you're seeing and what's going on. So certainly appreciate this opportunity. If our listeners wanted to learn more about Madison Energy Investments, where's the best way that they could learn? Yeah, just our website, madisonei.com. Got a what I think is a lot of good info up there. And Definitely. Yeah. If you haven't checked it out, I love the content that you have. I mean, you talk about different topics. Like, obviously, I saw the new post that you talked about, Community Solar. Yeah, that was our Brandon, who's a star on our team, who we laugh. He's become an expert in Community Solar, and he probably didn't even know what it was about a year and a half ago when we first started working with him, and now he's an expert. So people should definitely read that if they're interested in uh, Minnesota. Yeah, and there, there's a lot of great content that they have on their website. And if people wanted to get in contact with you, what's the best way? Yeah, my email's on the website, so they can just look me up on there. And I you know, would love to chat with folks in the industry, whether it's developers, EPCs, you name it. We're always happy to chat and learn more about business and the market you're in. And hopefully, um, yeah, we'll keep on the fighting the good fight. Yeah, definitely. You guys are doing an amazing job and continued success. Congratulations in a very short period of time with owning a lot of assets and a lot in the pipeline. So keep up the great work. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Benoit. Thanks, Appreciate Richard. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at reneuenergy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangen and Kevin Y. Brown. 